You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. I'm surprised to learn that the phrase game changer is not a new term. Actually came around in the 1930s, first in the field of business, Uh, Then I think you often hear it today more in terms of sports, some play is a game changer, a team getting a new player is a game changer, but consistent throughout its application is that to be a game changer means a person, event, or idea happens that changes and shifts how you see that event or experience from that point on, Uh, that there is a complete paradigm change. Well, we've been looking at the subject of Christian experiences, and we come to the last study in that series. And I'd like us to look at what I think Paul would say is the absolute game changer in the Christian life, and that is the love of Christ. And so the goal of our time this morning together would be that in looking at 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through chapter 6, verse 2, that we would walk away with a deeper understanding and application of why the love of Christ is a game changer in the Christian life. Uh, And Paul's going to argue his case by presenting three facets or points to that. And they are simply that the love of Christ compels you as a believer. The love of Christ changes you as a believer. And third, the love of Christ completes you as a believer. And so we want to take a look at why is Paul so adamant that in the Christian life, everything grows out of and centers on the love of Christ. So if you have your Bibles already open, look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And right away you'll notice that a title given in most Bibles to this section, the Ministry of Reconciliation. And Paul uses this word reconcile, reconciliation repeatedly in this section. Uh, Literally means to to bring two hostile parties together, uh, to bring them back into a state of harmony. And with that being said, we can understand just in a quick reading of this passage that Paul's discussion of reconciliation in Christ has two broad aspects to it. And the first one is very simply that of our our vertical relationship. So as Tony prayed, and as you think about this, vertically, Adam, in Adam, his sin ruined our relationship with God. And yet we were represented by him, so we can't fault him. We can't blame him. Uh, We were there in that same sense of guilt. But vertically, that ruined our relationship with God. Christ restores that relationship. But not only is there this vertical dimension that's woven throughout this principle of reconciliation, there's a horizontal principle uh, that Paul's very much aware that as a Christian, what's happened vertically should also impact what happens horizontally in our relationships with people in as well as outside the church. Keep in mind that the letter of 2 Corinthians is one of Paul's most personal and vulnerable letters. Uh, And the reason being is he is finding himself 
uh, being attacked and criticized by many in the church at Corinth. In other words, horizontally, that, that relationship is not what it should be. And, and not because of Paul, but because of some things going on among the believers there. So Paul's going to weave those two together and say, don't, don't divorce those two and think what's going on vertically has nothing to do with what's going on horizontally. But it is true. What's going on vertically will dictate and determine what happens horizontally. So I said that Paul's going to give you three reasons as to why a game changer is the love of Christ. The first one is simply that the love of Christ compels you as a Christian. And this he says directly right in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Now, compel probably doesn't need much of a definition. It's a very forceful verb. Uh, it refers to being seized or overpowered by. So when you're thinking about this, it's not that suddenly we're forced to do something we don't want to as a Christian, but since our will has been seized and overpowered, our will is also to love God. So the love of Christ should compel every believer. And so as you're looking at verse 14 as well as into verse 15, Paul simply says that, well, through faith in Christ, you have been reconciled with God. Here's a basic but often overlooked theological truth. And, and listen carefully to how his argument goes in verse 14. We are convinced that one died for all, and I'll let you finish it. One died for all, and therefore, okay, all would mean who or what? <laughs> Every, everyone in Christ. Now go on in verse 15, and he died for all that... Yeah, now, now think of the connection Paul's making here, because I, I, I believe often in our own understanding of Christ's death for us, we stop short and we say, well, Jesus died for my sins. That's absolutely correct. He stood in your place and took the punishment for your sins. But Paul adds to that theological truth, and you died in him. It's not just that he represented you, but in his death, you also died. This would make perfect sense when you think in Romans 6, Paul says, consider yourselves as a Christian dead to sin. Well, why would Paul say that you're dead to sin? Well, you died in Christ. So notice the love of Christ compels us now because one, we've been reconciled, made right with God. He died for you. You died in him to the power of sin. And the logical conclusion is, well, therefore, if you've died with him, you now live for him. And isn't this what Paul gets to even in Galatians when he talks about, you know, that he has been crucified in Christ, yet he lives? So notice this connection. We are compelled now because we have been made right with God in Christ to live for God. 
And what does it look like to live for God, to serve him in this way? Well, you notice in verse 11 how Paul starts out. He says, since then, we know what it is to fear God. It's good for us to pause and consider what does it mean to fear God? And I said there were some issues in the church at Corinth, but there are also believers in the church. And as he addresses those believers, he says, look, we, we know what it is to fear God in the sense that I believe we have a proper understanding and reverence for God because we have been reconciled with God through the love of Jesus Christ. Notice, in addition, because we now have a correct acknowledgement of who God is, he says, we try to persuade men. Now, the word persuade there means to convince, to show them, to reason with them the truth of the gospel. What a dramatic change is presented here. That because of the love of Christ, we now live for a different purpose. We died with him. We live for him. And as we live for him, we display a right fear of God, and it is our passion to persuade men. And no one would doubt that if you looked at Paul's life, how he, how he lived, how he conducted himself. He, he was all about trying to engage people in discussions about the truth of the scriptures, whether that be believers to build them up or unbelievers and pagans to challenge them in their worldview and to say to them, that does not make reasonable sense. Those presuppositions are exposed as being false. Look closely at verse 12. Paul goes on and says, we are not trying to, to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Now, we're dealing with how does one live in accordance with the fear of God. And Paul contrasts here that many in, the, in Corinth were emphasizing outward appearances, uh, even spiritual experiences over doctrinal truth. And he says, in the midst of that, what I want you to do is take pride in what is going on in your heart. Take pride in the work of God in you, which points people back to the power of God. And I think maybe the word that sometimes we get hung up on is the, the word pride here, when Paul is admonishing Christians, take pride, is not a sense of arrogance or superiority, but is the word to boast or glory in. You, you are to boast in what is yours in Christ, to boast in your reconciliation with Christ, to want others to see evidence of that in your life that they would then boast and glory in the work that God is doing in your heart. What a big difference between how our world would approach what pride and arrogance is when Paul takes this word for boast and glory, often rendered pride, but also boast and glory in Scripture, and says this is a part of the Christian life. This, this should come with the faith that you learn how to boast in the glory of God. 
So the love of Christ should compel us to want to persuade others of who Christ is. Not, not manipulate, but to, in gentleness and in fear of God, present the truth of the scriptures. Engage in discussions. Not be fearful of questions they might raise or misconceptions they might have. But in line with all of this, you see that that is to overpower us. That is to seize us and be evident of a changed will. So if you think back to yesterday and those that were, were able to walk in the parade, uh, why did you do that? Now, I'm not asking you to tell me, but to kind of think, why did you do it? If you did it just to get air and be out in the community, that's not really a good reason. If you did it just so you could maybe see some people on the parade route and say hi to them. But if we were compelled by the love of Christ, we did it as a witness and a testimony to our church, to our love for him, to our presence in the community. And then in the midst of a, a changing world, we're, we're saying we're here. And we have a message that's just as relevant today. Now, we didn't have opportunity to verbally say that to everyone. But I think if we were to ask ourselves, why, why did you, why did I walk in that parade? I'm hoping we would say, you know what, it was because of my love for Christ. I didn't do it because I felt pressure to. I didn't do it to avoid guilt. I did it because I love Christ. And we could take that and expand it into other areas in our life. Why, why do you volunteer to clean the church? Do you have no dust at your own home? It's so clean that you're kind of looking for projects to do. Do you do it because you just love moving a vacuum around? It's your passion. I would hope we'd say I, I do it out of love for Christ. And you could start to ask yourself anything you do in the Christian life. If it's not compelled by the love of Christ, it fits into that category of Paul will say, when you stand before the Lord, all these things that you built on false premises are going to be all burned up because they have no eternal value, significance then, because they were not compelled by your love for Christ. So no wonder the love for Christ is, is a game changer in Paul's eyes. And he's saying to the church in Corinth, never lose sight of that should compel you. But he moves on to a second proof, a second importance, and that is the love of Christ changes you. Notice what he says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. So remember, this is a letter. It's not meant to be taken in sections. Uh, they, each part builds on and continues to form the ultimate argument of the letter to encourage them, to prepare them that when Paul does visit there, he wants it to be a joyful time, a time of great teaching, not merely a time of having to correct some of these concerns. But in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Paul says... And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
So previously, Paul mentioned in the same letter, you are being continually changed and transformed in Christ. And that's only possible because of the love of Christ that continually changes and transforms us into the image of Christ. That process which we often call sanctification. For every day, you're being hopefully more and more made in reflecting Jesus Christ. Thomas Kalmers is a Presbyterian minister back in the 18th century. He, he referred to this transformation, this change. Uh, he said it is the expulsive power of a new affection. Expulsive, not explosive, but expulsive. In other words, it comes with such force and power. It's a new affection in your life. And I think that's where Paul is reminding us there is a change in your life because of Christ. And not a change that just dates back to your initial conversion. But what can you look at that evidences this continual change or metamorphosis in your life? And so maybe to help us with that, we need to consider again what Paul puts before the believers in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5. Notice verses 14 and 15. Maybe this is a given, but when you look at changes in your life, verse 14 again says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. In other words, your standing and position in Christ has changed once and for all. So if you know Christ is your Lord and Savior, there is this definitive dramatic change that has happened. You are now a child of God. You have access into God's presence. You belong to him. His spirit is in you. That is unchangeable. It is irreversible as irreversible as Christ's death and resurrection is. That, that can never be redone or undone. And this is why when we have communion, we speak of communion and the bread and the cup as being symbols, representatives of Christ's death and resurrection. Not that Jesus is being re-crucified all over again. That is not necessary. That is not needed. He died once and for all. But there is an aspect in which we should be looking at our lives saying, how are they continually changing? Because of the love of Christ. And that moves us to verse 13. Verse 13, Paul says, if we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. And so to ask ourselves, how has your thinking and affections and love for spiritual truth changed? How is it being refined and hopefully increased in your daily life? Are your thoughts often about God? Do you have an increasing hunger for worship, for prayer, for fellowship, with other believers, for time in the scriptures. Notice in verse 13, Paul references this fact. You know what? 
our world will not understand how a Christian thinks. We, we have the mind of Christ. Our world has the mind of the world. So you should not be surprised if our position, our standing, our understanding of truth, morals, and ethics runs counter to our world, and our world looks at us and says, what is wrong with you? Why would you think that? Why would you hold that to be true? Paul's a perfect example to us of how he was so often misunderstood, falsely criticized. Even as he's writing this letter to a church, he knows some in that church are, are criticizing Paul and attacking him and saying, you're not, you're not really an apostle. You know, we, we don't really need to listen to you more than we do some other people. But it shouldn't surprise us that when it comes to how the love of Christ changes you, the change in our thinking should be so dramatic and increasingly evident that at times we find ourselves at odds with the world, where our unsaved friends, neighbors are wondering, why, why do you think like you do? Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you make the decisions that you make? Look with me for a moment at Acts chapter 26. In Acts chapter 26, Paul's not speaking theoretically here as if, well, I've heard that this can happen sometimes if you are growing in Christ. But in Acts 26, verses 24 and 25, you have Paul before Agrippa and Festus, and he's in the process of appealing his case to Rome um, because he knows that he will not in any way get a fair hearing, but he also wants to proclaim the gospel. But you notice in verse 24 and 25 of Acts 26, it says, At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. To Festus and Agrippa, Paul's testimony, Paul's love of Christ that compelled him made no sense to them. So much so that they really questioned Paul's sanity. You have nothing less different with Jesus. When on one occasion his own brothers and sisters wondered if he was in his right mind because of his, in their eyes, probably obsession with wanting to follow the will of of the Father. When was the last time that you experienced anyone sort of challenging how you think about things because of your faith in Christ? Your belief system, your priorities, the decisions you make. When was the last time you had someone kind of say to you, what is wrong with you? Why do you think like that? Paul's kind of saying, you know what? That that should happen to us more frequently than it probably does because the love of Christ changes you. It changes your thinking. It changes your affections. But returning to 2 Corinthians 5, we also are reminded of the horizontal impact and change the love of Christ brings. And so you see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
and verse 16, Paul brings us down to everyday life. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view that we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Now he's already hinted at this worldly point of view includes focusing on appearances, uh, focusing on other things that maybe we draw wrongful judgments on. Paul's saying Christ has changed that. And he's changed it not just in Paul's life. He's saying, I know to many of you in Corinth, this should also be the reality. He changes your viewpoint on those around you, your perspective. So we've moved from the vertical relationship to now its infiltration into horizontal relationships. And Paul knows that as he's writing this, he's very much aware that if the believers in Corinth are going to restore and write their relationship with him, that it will require that they first get things right with God. And it's important for us to realize that too, that there is a reflection that comes out of these. Notice verses 17 and 18, Paul talks about how we view other Christians. Think about your brothers and sisters in Christ, those right here with you now, other Christians you know. Do you see them as a new creation? Do you see them as a new creation? And much like you, a new creation that is continually also being renewed and transformed into the image of God. Because I think it's pretty safe to say all of us at times get impatient with other Christians. We, we want them to change and they need to change fast. Well, that might not be how God's working. Does he want all of us to change? Absolutely. Remember, the love of Christ changes you. But that rate of change and how that is to take place is not in our hands to determine or dictate, but in our Father's hands. And Paul says, do you see each other as first being a new creation in Christ? The old has gone, the new has come. If you were Jewish, you would catch those phrases, the old has gone, new has come. This is language from Isaiah. This is a picture of God's ultimate promise and restoration. And Paul already directing your attention that what was promised in Isaiah is accomplished in Christ's death and resurrection. But notice how the love of Christ changes you. Changes now how you view your relationships with other believers. But then we add to that in verses 19 through 21, it changes how you view your relationships with the unchurched and the unsaved. Because notice in verse 20 and 21, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, Paul does recognize there is a unique responsibility that the apostles have to communicate the truth of Christ. But at the same time, notice he says this ministry has been given to us, us as believers, that now our outlook has been changed on how we see the lost. 
they're, they're not merely annoying to us. They're not merely those who are, are going to go to hell if they do not recognize Christ. We, we have a compassion. We have a concern for them. We are compelled by the love of Christ so much that we are changed in how we see them. Just think again the difference you had when, when pressing in on Christ for all these multitudes and disciples, even wanting to try to protect him wrongfully, didn't see the crowds like Christ saw them. He had compassion on them. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Do we see the people around us day in, day out in our lives, in our neighborhood, in that same way? that we see them as these are the people that need to be reconciled to God. And how has God chosen to reach them? Not, not through a thunderbolt that he's going to send them. Not through some Bible that mysteriously flies into their house and opens up to a passage. It's you and it's me. Through a changed perspective on the lost no wonder that Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, if, if you're, you're ready to worship and you realize at the altar that something is not right with another brother or sister in Christ, what does he say? He doesn't say, keep going because you're already there and you have your gift. He says, leave, leave it. Go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and complete your obedience and your worship. Again, no wonder for these first two reasons, love of Christ is a game changer. It compels us now. It changes us. But Paul has one final argument in his case here, and that is the love of Christ completes us. Ironically, the more you experience God's love in your life in Christ, and the more you give that love to others, the greater becomes the love of Christ in your life. Not the opposite. It doesn't diminish the more you experience it and display it, the greater it becomes. And you see this is the part of Paul's discussion in chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2, where again he appeals to not just the language of Isaiah used earlier, but to a specific passage in Isaiah where he says, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. So in other words, the love of Christ completes us because it carries out two important functions in us. One is it serves as both an encouragement and a comfort to us. What a comfort to know that we are loved in Christ Jesus. Not, not because of anything you've done, not because of who you are, but, but you are loved because he called you. He chose you. What an encouragement. As he says, you are God's fellow workers, not just us because we're apostles, but if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are God's fellow workers workers. That should encourage us, strengthen us, further compel us. So much so that when Paul continues on in this discussion, 
He talks about his own hardships that he's gone through in the Lord. And yet doesn't say that in a whining kind of tone like woe is me or a victim mentality. But he says it to demonstrate his love for Christ and his love for them. To encourage them and strengthen them in what they may have to go through as they encounter the Christian experience. But there's another aspect in which the love of Christ completes us. And that it also serves to be a convicting and a purifying truth. Because you notice Paul's warning in those first two verses of chapter 6. Comparing it to kind of, well, when Isaiah said these words, he was looking at the servant of the Lord coming. And now that servant has come, Paul is carrying out that same work of the servant of God. But is it possible that our understanding of the love of God in Christ, that we can grow complacent with that. That we can stop experiencing the impact and the game change that it should have in our lives. One of the churches that Paul cared deeply for was the church at Ephesus. When the letter of Revelation is written, Paul has already died and gone to be with the Lord. And yet the warning to that church is you have lost your first what? Love. That somehow the love of Christ that should have compelled you, changed you, and completed you, you you've let that slip. You've neglected it. But you're not without hope because you can and should repent. In other words, we want to be careful as Christians, not that we just say we understand the love of Christ, but we're not living off a 20-year-old conversion. In other words, that love for Christ is not something that happened in the past, that we're still trying to speak of it as if it's a reality in our life. But that as Paul puts forth here, that kind of love bears proof in our life. You may have heard of Brian Chapel. He's a well-known Christian pastor, author, and speaker. Uh, but he tells the story of something that happened in his hometown. Uh, he grew up along the banks or very close to the Mississippi River. And you may know that the Mississippi typically will flood over, silt will spill, and it forms these large sandbars. Uh, and he says, if you go up in Mississippi, you know that these sandbars are a great place to play, but a dangerous place. Because often this silt hardens on top, but, but it's very cavernous underneath. Well, he says, what happened one time is two brothers failed to show up for dinner. Uh, the family became quite frantic, began to search for them. And the first place they thought of is head to the sandbars. Well, as they were searching and looking, they saw the younger brother's head and shoulders just sticking out of the sandbar. And he was unconscious. So they quickly got to him. They tried to pull away as much sand as they could, got him freed up to his waist, and, and, he, and he came to. And his parents said to him, where is your older brother? Where is your older brother? And the younger brother said, I'm standing on his shoulders. His older brother sacrificed his life 
in order to lift his younger brother to safety. Now, if we can be so moved by a story about human love, how much greater should divine love demonstrated in Christ not just compel us, but change us and complete us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as part of our worship, we come to the Lord's table or supper, an act that speaks of our fellowship, our partnership with you, made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, by one who took the punishment in our behalf so that we might be brought not just to just safety, and deliverance from hell, but to be brought into a new life, to be restored to our created purpose, to delight in you. And so as we come to this time of worship, continue to draw our thoughts to the love of Christ displayed for us while we were yet sinners. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is good for us to always reflect on what Christ has done, to realize that we need to examine our hearts before him. Uh, because that love for him must be kindled. It must be renewed day by day, moment by moment. And that is why there's a warning that we always need to give at the Lord's Supper, is if you are not walking with Christ, if that love of Christ is not impacting your life, then you need to deal with that heart issue uh, and let the bread and the cup pass, because you've got more important issues you need to deal with before Christ. And for those that we would say we are walking with the Lord and we want that love to grow deeper, this is a time to be encouraged and strengthened. So let's pray together and then I'll pray over the bread. Heavenly Father, may we each humbly come before you. May your spirit search us, bring to our mind any attitudes, actions that we have neglected to confess to you that prevent us from being in as close as fellowship as possible with you. Lord, if this has not been a good week for us spiritually, may we also acknowledge and ask your forgiveness for that and claim the love of Christ, which has been demonstrated to us, that we would know that there is forgiveness in you that you would give us a heart that does desire to love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. And as we hold the bread, may it remind us of your body, which was not forced to be given, not surrendered because Roman authority was greater than your authority, but willingly offered on our behalf. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.